Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Antique Auction Forum. We have two great guests. Uh, they've both been past uh, guests on this show, uh, Richard Wright and David Rago. And uh, we are going to talk today about their merger that they're doing. I'm pretty excited to speak about that. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for having us. And you, we are right now, you are down in Lambertville, right? And at the Lambertville office, the auction gallery there. In the heart of New Jersey. Yes. And if I remember right, David, you told me last time we spoke, you're about four miles from the Nakashima shop? Uh, as the crow flies, yes. Yeah. And uh, what what great history uh, that is. And, and the shop is still going. Mira is still uh, running that. And uh, you and I have had a few conversations over the years about uh, people that have had Nakashima in the area. Uh, I got a while we're just I'm talking about Nakashima. Why... When I lived out in the San Francisco area, why was it so popular out there? I used to see it, it seemed like everywhere out there in, in San Francisco. I would be given an educated guess, but something about the, the natural edges of the wood uh, seemed very harmonious with a lot of the architecture I saw in San Francisco and Marin County. I see. Hmm. Free edges the uh, use of structural detailing. I've been in a number of houses in the San Francisco and, and north of San Francisco area where the modern housing, lots of trees, especially yes. conifers, and it seemed to be a really good fit to me. Mill, Mill Valley, I remember. I remember when I was out there, there was actually, I looked at a table where the uh, the underside of it, the um, person that owned it made me crawl underneath and look, and he said, there's a Civil War bullet right there. <laughs> in the tree that was embedded in the tree and he kept it in that was pretty we, interesting definitely seen that uh pieces of, of flitch cut wood that had metal in them usually a bullet and, yeah uh, yeah pretty amazing the wood up not too good happened. for the saws <laughs> no. yeah. um, so uh we're going to talk about the merger but first of all let's talk separately um david you've been around this for uh, uh, even long, I'd say, you know, 45 years I've been at, you know, auctions and antiques. I think you have me beat. You you started out very, very young. But um, I want to get I into... Seven. What's that? I was seven when I started. <laughs> okay, I was 15. Yeah. Uh, that That's pretty amazing. And, you know, you don't see a lot of that today, but occasionally you will see kids that are really into it, and I love that. You know, I mean, it... it it's, we need that. We need that coming up. But uh, go ahead, if you wouldn't talk a little bit about your your gallery, and then uh, Richard, your turn after that. Sure. Well, we started our auction company in '84. I've been in the business since '72. I actually started the flea market in Lambertville, which is about two miles from where we're sitting, two and a half miles, and uh, soon discovered porcelain and ceramics. Timing was really good. I had, was a college student. I had no money. From there, I moved into arts and crafts material. It just kept changing with it. Uh, in the early 90s, we held our first modern auction. I think it was 90 or 91, not long after George Nakashima died. And, uh, gradually made the shift from early 20th century to mid-20th century to contemporary. So it's been a long and circuitous route. I bet. Now, did you have to kind of guide your your buying audience along to get excited about these type of things? Or how did that How did that come about? Now, we have many mottos in our business, but one of my favorites is that desperation is, is the mother of invention. <laughs> and uh, when the recession hit in the early 90s, we were just looking for things to sell. Uh-huh. Because we were in the Lamberville area, we lived in Lamberville at that time, 
we came across some really interesting modern material. Uh, I lucked into some George Nakashima from a, a realtor in New Jersey who had a hundred pieces of it. He started consigning with us. So I would say it was the path of least resistance. I, I, I wish it was more intelligent, more prescient than that. I, I cannot take credit for prescience in this case. Uh, uh, you've certainly found your niche, that's for sure. And uh, Richard, uh, why don't you go ahead and, and talk about how you you began and, and you know, you're, you're into uh, the 20th century design as well and uh, 21st century design as well, aren't you? Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's an interesting parallel. I started out in the flea markets as well. So ah. I started as a dealer in the late 80s, um, uh, having no money at that time. Instead of doing arts and crafts, which was already kind of expensive, I did modern. So I, I started right away with what was the most accessible market at that point, which were things from the 50s. Uh, worked my way up, um, worked at another auction house, the Treadway Toomey Auction House, ran that uh, from 93 to 99 left in 2000 to open my own and uh, uh, you know sort of uh, built it up from there I think like David you know kept evolving the whole way um, which mm-hmm. is something we've both been really proud of and is, is something that I think has made this this kind of next chapter actually feel just you know totally appropriate to what we can do in our whole career right um, one of the things I, I noticed about your your auction, a gallery right away, Richard, is uh, the wonderful photography. It's almost like the photography and the catalogs are almost like art- artistic. And um, I was getting your catalogs for a long time, and they're just fabulous. And uh, doing this work myself, I know what it takes to catalog and put together a catalog. It's besides the vast expense, um, you know, it, it's an enormous amount of time. Um, yeah, we've invested a lot. The print catalogs were our original claim to fame. And, you know, we still do them, and I still love print, but digital has become really our focus and, you know, trying to, to translate that same quality, uh, visual quality through the web, um, uh, you know, is definitely the future. Right. And, uh, you know, speaking of that, it's less and less auction houses will do a, a physical catalog compared to an online catalog. Uh, it's still... Uh, about the same amount of work, a little less money because of the printing issues, but still. Um, so what made you two decide to to join together? And uh, how do you think that's going to benefit uh, both of you and, and the buyers? You know, uh, you know, quite honestly, I think the, the, the pressures within the industry brought us together in so much as, you know, it's, it's, it's a very competitive field. It's, you know, Christie's and Sotheby's are, you know, the two behemoths at the top of the industry that really increasingly are trying to capture total market share. With digitization, you know, you have first dibs um, and you have Christie's and Sotheby's mounting more and more digital auctions um, and just, again, trying to take as, take, take as much as they can. Um, David came, came to me. Uh, we were friendly competitors, but we weren't, uh, you know, we weren't respectful. Yeah, respectful. That's good. We, uh, we actually didn't know each other very well. Um, uh, and we started talking about a year and a half before we actually final, finally legally merged, uh, which was only in January of this year. Um, and through the process, the process has been really wonderful. I think that we've become friends and that this natural synergy that we saw um, uh, really has become apparent. You know, just in the brief way that we've described our, you know, the way, the way 
we rose up through the business, you know, as auction, as an auction house, I've invested a lot in process and in photos and in, you know, that sort of, you know, that sort of back of house uh, thing. David has built an incredibly, uh, you know, client facing forward organization where he's here in Lamberville, tons of people come here. He's, you know, really, you know, has, has great outreach, um, which is not, me, not so much. And, uh, you know, the, the combination of that has actually proved, proven to be wonderful. We, we thought there'd be, as Richard said, a synergy when, when we agreed to do this. And in some of the ways we were right in, in anticipating there'd be some savings costs and we could make more interesting auctions. And uh, we were selling things that Richard wasn't. For example, we were holding jewelry sales and estate sales with Asian art and even coin auctions. Richard wasn't doing any of this. So we felt that we had that to offer. And we also knew that Richard was approaching auctions from a higher level than we were. I mean, our catalogs were really good, but as you said, the photography that Richard was, was, was uh, employing was at a, at a different level. And we saw that, I mean, we're in the art business. We can better is better. And it's not, it's not hard to determine, but beyond that, we're seeing that uh, the, the union has, has really changed the game for both of us in ways I didn't see coming. For example, even in the material that we were both selling, like we spoke earlier about George Nakashima, well, now we have more Nakashima to draw from, and we have more auctions to sell it in. I was only selling Nakashima three times a year in my three main modern sales, and Richard was holding maybe four or five or six auctions. Mm -hmm. Now there's maybe 10 auctions a year where Nakashima would be appropriate. And instead of my having to put, I mean, I had, I've had auctions with Nakashima with 50 plus lots of Nakashima in one day. Wow. It's a lot to bring out at one time. We don't have to do that anymore. Now we can spread those 50 lots out over three different auctions and really give a, a, a certain amount of focus to each individual lot rather than jam it all together. So those are, that, that's one of the ways we're definitely seeing a, a change for the good. I see. Now, do you have to get involved in shipping between Chicago and Lambertville? I mean, does that is that happening? There's a little bit of that for sure. I mean, you know, uh, the the Chicago operation has relatively, as I said, we're, we're less uh, less outward focused. Uh, we have uh, far fewer previewers, and we actually sell relatively little material in Chicago. So when we when we take in consignments to be sold in Lambertville. Very often we'll ship things to Lambertville because the preview is very important here. Um, on the right platform, we sell a lot to the East Coast anyway, and then uh, so a lot of a lot of the the property will stay right here in Lambertville. So it's it's also helped you know uh, people that want to consign under the right platform because we're keeping we're keeping two brands going. Um, so so you so you, you sort of have two channels that you can choose from. Um, you know, we found that having the East Coast destination is actually additive for our buyers and sellers. I see. Um, I was having an interesting conversation with Jay Stanger. Are you familiar with him? Yeah. Uh, just a, a few. If, yeah, a few days ago, I'm actually uh, appraising a, a piece that took him four years to make in a home. It's really a, an amazing piece. And we started talking about the. What's that? It's yeah. very expressive. Uh, Oh, I'll say uh, we started talking about, you know, how his things fare at auction, how, you know, contemporary work by certain people fare. And he said his not so well, but he did say that there was one uh, furniture artist and I didn't catch the name or I didn't remember the name 
that he says that when the pieces go to auction, they go higher at auction than what that person would commission them for. Have you heard of this happening? Or is he talking about James Bearden, maybe? Possibly. Again, I, 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 did, I didn't catch the name. But I mean, that was, a market, that was a market we championed maybe a decade or so ago as a furniture maker from the Midwest. And uh, similar to Paul Evans, a lot of welded metal. Uh-huh. And we were selling pieces for multiples of what he was not able to sell them for in, in, in Missouri. I see. Early on, that's since his pricing structure has since changed to adapt to the new market <laughs> levels. Yeah, I can see that adjustment. Yeah. It's certainly at the high level, Lalon furniture. You know, the, the French, uh, they're, they're no longer living, but uh, Claude Lalon, um, you know, just they recently passed. But the furniture, you know, would sell out very quickly. And then if it came, came up at auction, it would sell for a multiple. So a lot of it has to do with supply and demand. Sure. Uh, yeah. But in general, the secondary market is below the primary market for most uh, contemporary craft. By quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. We're just seeing, uh, I mean, Mira Nakashima would be an interesting case in point, again, to stay with Nakashima. And that's, these pieces are made four miles from where Richard and I are sitting now. And her, we see her secondary market evolving. Uh, initially, pieces were selling for a third of what they sold for originally. And now, especially if they were purchased more than a decade ago, they're bringing two thirds and sometimes full uh, original sale price. So there the definitely is a move forward in that regard. Would you say this is a lot like an artwork that goes to auction and all of a sudden, you know, the uh, sets a high auction record and then on the coattails of that, things seem to hold, you know, uh, near that or they seem to rise uh, for that particular artist? Is that is that similar in, in when it comes to, to pieces that you handle for a contemporary yeah, I mean, I think you can get in one great, you know, result mm-hmm. can help a market, but not. It doesn't always permanently move the market. It it can reset the frame. Yeah. So you know, or you 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 know, you think about it uh, relative pricing a little bit differently. Um, it's always nice when that happens a bit more organically, and, and prices rise over time. Like what David was saying with Mira Nakashima, we've seen. Oh, gee, we just had a, a really nice group, and it did a little bit better than the than some of the material before. And you see that that sort of natural evolution, I think, is always healthier for a market than a big spike. Yes, which sometimes maintains, but sometimes it can also big kind as, of crash. As, as my poker teacher said to me after I had a good run of cards, he said, "One robin does not a spring make." And <laughs> yeah. I got to tell you, the day he said that to me, I lost my entire bankroll within about a month. Oh. So, yes, <laughs> there are spikes, but uh, yeah. as we said, I prefer to see a more consistent and steady and even growth. Wow. Uh, one of the podcasts I have done in the last part of the podcast um, a, a, a while back was on Bellamy Eagles. I don't even know if either one of you are familiar with Bellamy Carved Eagles. They're, they, they're very popular in the, in the East Coast, and uh, it was a carver that would generally sell for well, when I was a kid, it was five hundred bucks, and that was a big deal. And then, uh, you know, they're right now they're in the five to ten thousand dollar range. But there was a spike. I mean, talk about a spike! Northeast auctions. Ron Borjo had one that went for six hundred and sixty thousand with the buyer's premium. And then, so after that, they were selling for six figures for for I think six months, and then they dropped all the way back down to where they 
they were. I mean, it would have been wonderful to cash in. But you'd see, you know, what happens in that particular case was all of a sudden everyone had a Bellamy Eagle putting it in an auction and flooded the market. They came out of the woodwork. So, yeah. I think, I think it's the important thing to remember. It really is supply and demand. Yes. Uh, and many of these markets are driven ultimately by a small number of people at the top. And when they're active in buying, um, you know, the market can be very strong. But if too many examples, once they have, you know, very, very few people are going to buy multiples of the same. Once they have, right. and if it keeps coming, then just in this, the law of economics, the price will drop. I mean, David's seen this in many, you know, ceramics markets with the Natzlers. Mostly seen it in furniture because, as a friend of mine once said, you can, talking about arts and crafts market, you can buy a Gustav Stickley bookcase where you can buy 40 pieces of pottery to put in it. Huh. Once you have that bookcase and once you have that dining table and that Morris chair, you're pretty much done with that form. Yeah. But if you're a smallest collector, if you're buying Venetian glass or American or Georgia or American ceramics, there's always room for another pot or a piece of glass. Yeah. And so, which I think a lot of people don't consider is that uh, if you want to get rid of that Gustav Stickley bookcase or, or that, that uh, Paul Evans dining table, what's well, a pain in the neck. I mean, you've got to, first of all, find the one you want more. Then you have to find out how to sell the one you've got and find people to come in and take it and carry it and then bring the new one in. And it's a lot of work. You want to change a piece of pottery or a piece of glasses on that dining table or in that bookcase, you pick it up, you put it in a box and you send it to someone. Yeah. It's very easy to change these things around. So I, I think we point. see less in the way of fluctuations in smalls than we do in furniture. Yeah. Yeah. Very good point. Um, I, I love dealing with smalls when I'm, <laughs> when I'm cataloging and, uh, bringing things into auction is just seems like it's so much better luck than the hit or miss of furniture. And you just brought up, uh, arts and crafts. What is that market? Like, I haven't really been following. What is a, a gust of stickly pieces? Are they hanging in there in the market or is it, is it soft these days? Well, it, it's it's a difficult subject because it's very close to my heart. I mean, this this furniture was made. It's revolutionary. It was made for a philosophical and spiritual purpose. It's not just something to sit in. It was meant to transform society from the inside of the home. I can wax about this for a long time. It's very very powerful, and it's furniture that makes a statement and was effective in what it in what it chose to do for a while. And then when the, the after Woodstock, hippies started buying it. That's when I got in the market in the early <laughs> 70s, and, and it found its purpose all over again. It was a very revolution-oriented society, and the furniture fit. But the problem is that that demographic is aged, and this is a group of people that are either not adding or they're downsizing, and the kids haven't really discovered it yet. Uh, our last sale had some very good Roycroft furniture, which is pretty rare, and also highly spiritualized material. And uh, I was on the phone with a new bidder. He was 22 years old, and I said, wow. So we're going to hold a parade for you if you come out here. We're going to have a parade just to show people that somebody your age is buying this stuff. It was very exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I would love. I love the arts and crafts of uh, that whole that whole era of uh, just such beautiful pieces. And you know, I never thought about it spiritually, but yeah, well, a lot of it. Uh, I I could see why you're going that with that. Um, and I, I was just in a home recently where they they had a table they didn't know about. And then they also had on the third floor they had uh, uh, hanging lamps, and uh, you, you just don't see that. It doesn't seem like that comes up uh, as often, you know, in a place mm-hmm. where they don't know what they have. It seems like everyone seems to know what they have. And uh, but um, as far as 
you know, talking to people that are, you just talked about the 22-year-old, and one of the reasons I do this podcast, I try to get, you know, people interested in this market. Um, you know, I, I got an email from an appraiser 20 years ago. He said, uh, the baby boomer effect is going to leave us all surrounded by beautiful things worth nothing. <laughs> and uh, what's that? Who said that? It was an appraiser. He said from um, connected to him on LinkedIn, and he sent it to me. And I've been looking for it. I can't. I can't find it. But that was that was. Uh, a, I want to say that was in uh, two thousand four or something like that when he wrote me that, and I didn't believe it. I kind of like you know, rebutted against it. But uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. Sure does. Yeah, and and all this material will be coming. You just mentioned the baby boomers. The uh, you know the older market. Um, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think that people, young people, may start appreciating this, like this bidder you were talking about? And if not, uh, are we in trouble? I mean, I have a I have a more optimistic view of it. I think that that tastes change across generations, and there will be things that that were everybody wanted and were in vogue, like you know, Bakelite radios and Bakelite jewelry that just go by the wayside, salt and peppers, collectors, and all that stuff just, you know, it's on eBay. It just kind of went down, down, down. Um, the great material of any era translates. Um, and I think that, that, that there'll, be, there'll be things that will be discovered by future generations. You know, David's handled the work of George Orr for decades. The potter. Uh, the potter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And recently, and he can he should speak more about this. But the, but in my outside view, the market went up, the market went down, and now a whole new generation of buyers is coming in, and the market's going back up. And to me, that you know, nineteenth century in many cases, what's her early twentieth century work, looks really radical and fresh at the twenty in this twenty first century era. And I think that, that that new people are discovering. So to me, that's going to make the leap. I think also, if you wanted to buy a nice Gustav Stickley, a really good Gustav Stickley two-door bookcase at the height of the market, say in 2007, that bookcase, a good basic one, was going to be seven to $10,000. And that priced a lot of people out of the market. Now that bookcase might be half that, maybe a little less than half that. As these prices come down, it's qualitative furniture. If people understand how intelligent it is, what it says about the society from which it from from which it sprung, I mean, you got to put your books in something. I, I keep quoting a, a friend of mine from the arts and crafts days, Harvey Kaplan. His grandmother used to say that there's a took us for every chair, and uh, and you got to sit in something. And so you're going to go out to, to IKEA and buy a brand new piece of garbage and put it together yourself, or you want to buy a really nice chair and, and a chair that was five thousand dollars might be twelve hundred dollars now. At that point, I think at some level people recognize the quality and value quotient is, is hard to ignore. And I think that the younger generation is also going to have to grapple much more with, uh, you know, uh, climate change and the idea of reusing, redap, you know, right, mm -hmm. adapting and reusing things from the past is going to make more and more sense. Uh, I hope so, because we'll look at the, the new furniture. First of all, there's such an environmental impact from it and and not only that um you know uh why would a moving company not move ikea furniture <laughs> because it it doesn't stay together it it's disposable mm -hmm. 
and we're in a disposable society. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to see that the trend will uh, go back to, you know, the green part of people interested in, in furniture. Um, I have seen a, a I, it seems to me that I have seen a little bit of a rise of that um, in the last uh, year or two that you know, more I've younger seen, people are getting involved. I've seen some good interest in American classic American 50s. You know, I've mm-hmm. dealt Charles Eaton's my entire career. High watermark for that price-wise was probably 2002, three, um, And then it, it went down. I've continued to sell it. You know, part of our investment in, 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 in our websites and in digitization allows us to reach, you know, this younger audience. And, uh, you know, I've seen... A lot of young people now wanting an original Eames chair, wanting that patina, wanting to feel the real thing. Um, and, and I think a lot, you know, I think you can spend a lot of time saying millennials aren't going to collect. I think the natural demographic for people to, to collect are, are older when they're in their 40s and 50s and they start to have a more, more permanent sense. Um, I, I think that just the, the, the appeal of, you see it in the art market, you know, the, 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 the desire to live with beautiful things is deeply human. And I'm not, I'm not so worried about that. Um, you know, what those beautiful things are might change, and we, we will change with it. Or we'll be out of work. Yeah, <laughs> we're changing. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things, I, I, you know, I'll give my opinion and like to hear yours is uh, – uh, you know, I've met a lot of, you know, collectors over the years and had conversations. And one of the things they enjoyed the most was the hunt, you know, uh, uh, boots on the ground hunt. And now we have the Internet. And, uh, you know, eBay has certainly changed a lot of things. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to be in the Hummel market, <laughs> you know, prior to eBay or, or Roosevelt Pottery or something like that. But, um do you think that losing the chase, the physical chase, um, has affected value? Um, and the other, the other side of that coin is a lot of people see something now because of the Internet. They would have never seen it before. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, either one of you? I think the chase is still the same. I mean, I think you, you, we can pine for the past and think about, you know, uh, you know, I used to pick in Brimfield in those early mornings watching the sun come up and the eternal optimism of finding a great piece set out in front of you and and more often than not that happening before the end of the day you know that was an amazing time but you know it's fun i i can geek out looking at you know auctions in germany now mm-hmm. and looking at weird stuff you Good know point. i look at i look at japanese art from the 70s that you can buy in japan that is really not very expensive um you know so the whole world is available to you and if you, you know, if you, if you get into collecting, you know, then you can, you can, you can actually, you kind of have to raise the bar. If you just, if you want Hummels, yeah, you're going to visit a sea of Hummels. But, you know, it, I think it gets you to focus. If you're into like obscure, weird stuff, you can find it now. And the chase, I mean, I, I went to Brimfield, this would have been, say, 78. I spent three days at Brimfield, and I'm not exaggerating. I filled a, a Chevy cargo van with about 185 pieces of American art pottery in three days. I went back three years later, I bought four pieces. <laughs> we're talking, we're talking by 80, that, that ship had sailed. So the chase, but the chase didn't end then. It just changed. 
And, and as Richard said, now we can shop at, a, at an auction in Germany if he wants. But what I think is also the case, and I'll tie Antiques Roadshow into this, when we first started doing Antiques Roadshow in the late 90s, and we're about to start a 25th year doing Roadshow, they would, they'll send us now an appraisal we did 20, 22 years ago to edit it because we're going to reuse it, right? And it comes, it's that long. There's two paragraphs. That's what the appraisal was because people didn't know what they had. So that it could be marked Ruby Pottery. They wouldn't know they had a piece of Ruby. Well, starting in 2003, 2004, the people come in and they knew, oh, this is a piece of Ruby Pottery. It was made in 1905 and that's where the Erickson signature and the last one's over. They had all this information. Well, you should see the appraisal lengths now from the early 2000s on. They're this long because... We couldn't just say, oh, that's a piece of Groovy pottery made in Boston, Massachusetts. It's worth $2,000. Now we had to tell them what Groovy pottery was. Why was Groovy pottery in Boston, Massachusetts? What happened there that caused this pottery to be created? And how does this piece relate to the other pottery made in Boston at that time? Now you're really telling the story. And what we're seeing is that people are becoming more intelligent. They're really The ones who are interested are drilling down. And understanding the nuances of the material as never before, because this information is on the internet. It's out there. Uh-huh. You can you want to see what groovy pottery looks like? If you were to spend about three hours, you could probably look at about two thousand pieces of groovy pottery by searching auction websites, seeing what they look like, what they were estimated for, and how much they sold for. That information wasn't available a generation ago. So that's a long answer to your question, but I, I think as Richard says, the, the hunt has changed and it has favored the people who have changed with it. Wow! Wow, that's really that's really interesting. And uh, as far as you know, the the new collector, um, someone that is just getting started, uh, what advice would uh, either one of you give them to get started? Well, to David's point, I think what's great is all the information out there actually gives more confidence to new collectors. So I think if you can, if you want to start collecting groovy pottery, it's pretty easy to understand whether you're buying an A piece, B piece, or a C piece, and approximately what you should be paying. Um, and that, you know, transparency and information actually build markets. So in, in that sense, it's a, it's a real positive. You know, it makes it hard for pickers because people do know that information is out there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, auction houses have played a huge role in educating the market and building the market. And, you know, that's, that's true. That's something we're proud of. As far as being harder for pickers, I mean, so I... I bought, what, 180 pieces of pottery at Brimfield in three days, right? And I made X dollars. I can buy one piece of pottery now and make the same amount of money those 180 would have brought me as profit because the information is, is that much more nuanced and the market's that much more evolved. So I, I think that the, the – I think it doesn't favor the lazy. If you're willing to do the work and if you're really good at this, mm-hmm. this information explosion that we see uh, yes. benefits uh, the qualitative dealers from qualitative auction houses. Yeah. You know, the only double-edged sword of that is when, when someone thinks they have something in front of them that is similar, you know, or, or a reproduction. You know, I mean, that they, they're, you know, they have to learn uh, the hard, the school of hard knocks that way. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've all done Usually, that. We're offered those things in letters that are all caps. Everything's in capital letters. <laughs> this is the best piece of issue we'll ever see in capital letters. That's what I know immediately that's going to be difficult. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, all right. So why don't you give out your information, how people can get um, – no, one last question. You're still running running independent auctions uh, separately, or how does that work? So we're one – we are one company uh, with a shared back end, and we're operating two separate brands. 
with selective co-brands, if that isn't confusing enough. So, you know, the, the history that each of us have built up, um, and it's a quirky business. There are people that love doing business with Rego. They want to go to Lambertville. This is, you know, they feel really proud of this place. And they personally love David because he's been doing it so long. Yeah. You know, and then Wright has a different, you know, sort of association. So we're, we're able to draw the best of both of our individual brands. And then tomorrow we're doing a, one of our, uh, an auction together, which is a co-branded sale. Um, which I think really shows how we can collaborate in a public way. We're publicly merged. We, we, we talk, you know, Rego right all the time. But, you know, uh, so two separate channels, selective co-branding. Um, but you can reach us, you email either, either, either website, you're going to, you know, it, it all goes to the back end. So huh. we'll, we'll, we'll find you. Right. Uh, as we're speaking here, your Rego right structure and ornament uh a notice came across my screen. <laughs> and, you know, it's a great example because Mark McDonald is is the curator of that auction, uh, a, a good friend of both of ours. Um, David knows him, you know, better than I do, but I've admired Mark for, for many decades. We've both worked with Mark. Um, uh, but Mark came to us to do this project because of the synergies of the merger. You know, he wanted the high production value. He wanted to have the, the jewelry's previewing here in Lambertville. He wanted the East Coast. Didn't want to be in the Midwest. Wow. And it, it's, it's, it's really worked. So our teams have worked together. J- David has a jewelry team. We don't have a jewelry team. We have a design team. So we, it was a perfect collaboration and a really high-style auction that's gotten a lot of attention. Wow. David, I heard, uh, I read uh, a quote you were quoting from uh, someone that said uh, something about competitors um, do you remember that quote? Instead of competing, cooperate. Oh, that's Albert Hubbard. Uh, Albert Hubbard oh, said that's right. in, yeah. in, uh, ideally in business is cooperation, not competition. Right. It's, Excellent. It's more profitable and a lot more fun. Yeah, that it is. Not something many people ascribe to, but it's something I've believed in for a long, long time. And, and that was, certainly was one of the driving factors behind my wanting to merge. Excellent. All right, you two. Thank you so much. And I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. This was great. Good talk to you. Thanks a lot. All right, everyone. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back with uh, more episodes. Hopefully, you'll find entertaining and informational. This is Martin Willis from SeaboardAppraisals.com. 